Welcome to my podcast, Explain It To Me, where I talk to people who are experts in their field and get them to explain things to me in the simplest way possible. In my first episode, I talked to Christopher Strand, who has a PhD in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, and we talk about lasers. My name is Christopher Strand, and uh, my job title is, I guess it's um, technically it's Senior Research Engineer at Stanford University. And it's kind of a generic-ish title, but um, that's what I get classified as at Stanford in the mechanical engineering department. And ah. specifically, I work for Professor Ron Hansen. And I know you have a PhD from there and master's, from mm -hmm. there, but what is it actually in? So it's also, it, both of those are also in mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering is actually kind of a weird fit for the type of stuff we do, but it's... Uh, what is it that you do? <laughs> um, well... Are you not allowed to talk about it? Is it classified? <laughs> no, everything is perfectly perfectly open and accessible. That, that's actually a rule at Stanford um, that uh, they will not allow any research that has um, basically classification to it or um, secretive requirements. Everything has to be accessible to all of the population of Stanford and also uh, can be published in open peer-reviewed journals. Um, Does that uh, interfere with your CIA work? <laughs> Great. That's going to go on the podcast? Yeah. You know, label me as a CIA agent? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, it doesn't interfere with that. <laughs> Um, yeah, but what I actually do, um, I guess our lab does is we study, it's hard to pack it into just a few words, but, um, trying to keep it as short as possible. We study two separate things and they're kind of complementary. One is we study high temperature gas dynamics is really what it is. So it's, it's basically like when you have uh, gaseous species at very high temperatures, high pressures and things like that. What are the, and these would be in the cases of that could be inside like of a rocket engine or around a space vehicle as it re-enters an atmosphere, or it could be, you know, the inside of a car engine or some industrial process or things like that. Um, it's kind of what are the, what are the, what is the chemistry and the thermodynamics that happen? And, and we're trying to understand that. Um, and then the other major thing that we do is the tool set to be able to study these things is we use something called laser spectroscopy. And that, that's really what I am a specialist in is, uh, you know, certain types of laser spectroscopy. What is laser spectroscopy? Yeah, laser spectroscopy is basically the idea is that we want to be able to measure things. Measuring stuff is actually a pretty hard thing to do. To so you don't just want. use a tape measure? Tape measures are great. I wish everything was that simple. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the reality is it's very difficult to get quantitative numbers that you know are true for something. You know, we're, we try to seek like actual, as close to truth and high precision, high accurate, no, high accuracy numbers about something. So if we wanted to say something is some temperature, it's actually pretty hard to say what temperature something is. Um, there's a lot of effort that goes into doing that. And so anyways, what uh, laser spectroscopy is, is we use the interaction of light and matter. And in most of our cases, that matter is gaseous state matter, but we also do some stuff with it's on the edge of um, 
kind of weekly ionized plasmas as they're called. And we do some stuff that's also liquid phase, but our, our bread and butter is studying gas phase stuff. And so what we look at is how light interacts with matter and the ways in which it interacts with matter can tell us a bunch of things about the property of that matter. And the reason we like using light is that it doesn't inherent, doesn't perturb the, uh, the matter that we're probing in a substantial way. So you can think, for instance, um, as a kind of counterexample to that, like if you wanted to know the temperature of pot of water on your stove and you took a regular thermometer and you put it in there, technically that thermometer is slightly cooling down the water itself when you put it in there. And also you put it in and it displaces the water around the thermometer. Um, so measuring things with physical objects can be a problem because it will inherently distort that thing. And you can also think, for instance, you got a pot of boiling water, some thermometers aren't going to survive in that, you know, it's going to be too hot, it's going to melt the plastic or melt the damage in some sort of way. If you're sending in just lights, so you're sending in photons, it doesn't really perturb anything on at least on a macro scale that that is tangible for most of our applications. And um, it also survives, you know, you can, you could, you can send light in through any temperature gas you want, and it's going to be just fine. So how does it get the information back to the tester? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So there's a few different, you, you need to de detect the photons that have interacted with the thing that you're interested in measuring. And so there's a, a variety of ways to do this. In some cases, the most simple case in which is what we do most of the time is you have a laser, which is your light source. That's where you're getting your photons from. And we can talk about lasers more later if you want, but lasers are really nice because you can control the, the types of photons that are coming out um, and the characteristics of those photons. And so the light will pass through, let's say we have some gas cloud that we're interested in measuring. The light will pass through that gas cloud. And then on the other side, you have a detector, which is something that is sensitive to receiving photons. And so that detector, I mean, it's the same sorts of things that are in our video cameras, really. It's, it's variations on that, but it's basically um, semiconductor chips that are photosensitive. And so when they get light on them, they create an electrical signal and you record that electrical signal. And so if we know the characteristics of the light going in and we can measure the characteristics of the light coming out, we can, and we compare those and we say, all right, the in and out are different from each other, then the thing that caused that change is the, the thing, the gas that it interacted with. And if we know enough about the physics of how light and, and molecules interact with each other, and we know enough about how the laser and the detector system work, we can then back out um, the characteristics of that, um, that gas that we're interested in probing. So how does the information from the gas get into the light? Yeah, so um, we use a variety of techniques, but I'll, uh, the one that I'll talk about most um, that we use for most of our stuff because it's, it's really the most practical version of this that allows us to make measurements and things like rocket engines and stuff like that is um, what we're looking for is light absorption. Light absorption is something we, we can kind of see around us at all times, but what it is is a molecule. Let's, let's take an example of a molecule, okay? That molecule, if you can think of it as like, let's, let's say it's just two atoms and they're connected to each other. They're, they're bound together by some sort of, let's say it's an ionic bond or something or covalent bond, doesn't matter what the bond is, but basically you can imagine it as two masses on a spring, okay? And those masses can vibrate and they'll oscillate in and out. And the more energy that's stored in that molecule, the faster it will vibrate. 
but okay. based upon the rules of quantum mechanics, it can only vibrate at specific frequencies. And so it, it has these resonant frequencies and there'll be a resonant frequency and then a faster resonant frequency and then a faster one. And what you can do is when a photon comes and interacts with that molecule, if that photon matches the difference in energy between two of those, what are called vibrational states, the molecule will actually absorb the energy of the photon. The photon will disappear and that energy will go into the molecule and it will jump up to now be vibrating faster. Okay. And so what, when, when I'm saying matching that energy, the energy of a photon is actually also, it's equivalent to, it's just a different way of looking at it. It's the same as the wavelength or color of that photon. So if you match effectively the color of light to the resonance in the molecule, you will lose some photons. And so when you're watching from one side, you send in on one side with the laser, you say, all right, I know I'm sending in some number of photons. You have a detector on the other side that is watching that number of photons. And then you see that, all right, by passing it through this gas, I'm now getting fewer photons because that gas has absorbed them. And so with that, you can make inferences about what molecules are present because a molecule will only absorb photons that match its resonances. And if you know those resonances, then you can say, all right, that's this molecule that's there that's absorbing it. So that could be oxygen, let's say. You got two oxygen atoms joined in an O2 molecule. And if you match the resonant wavelength with your laser, you'll lose some of those photons to the, the oxygen. And you can see on the other side and you can say, all right, I lost this many photons. That must mean that I have this many, this amount of oxygen in that gas. Okay. An example. Um, you can also, from that information, infer a bunch of other things. You can tell what the temperature is of the gas. You can measure what the pressure is of the gas. You can measure the velocity of the gas. There's a bunch of other things you can pull out of that as well. If you have a, you kind of dig into the math a little bit. So how do you figure out the temperature of, of a gas or whatever you're measuring? All right. So um, let's see how I want to start this. Um, so I think the thing that the way that you do it is you actually use two different wavelengths of light, um, basically aiming at molecules that are have different energy levels that they're vibrating already at different, different uh, frequencies. And so to take a step back, uh, this is something that it's probably important to kind of define what temperature is. So we, we associate temperature as something being kind of hot relative to something that's cold, right? It's like temperature is always defined in this relative sense and something feels hot or feels cold um, to us touching it because um, basically it, it has high, more internal energy than the thing that's touching it and heat will transfer. Now, the actual scientific definition of temperature is actually based upon looking at that actual, the internal energy in the molecule. So as I said, these molecules can vibrate. They also have a bunch of other things. They can spin and they can translate around. There's a bunch of different types of energy that a molecule can store. But uh, when you have, let's, let's talk about a gas again. If you have a gas, you know, some volume of air in your house, right? You know, it's at some temperature. It's at, you know, 20 degrees Celsius, let's say. All right. So in that volume of gas, you have many, many, many molecules. You know, we're talking like, I don't know, 10 to the 20 kind of order molecules or something like that. I can't remember what it is for a volume of gas in a room temperature anymore. Um, but 
there's effectively, it's, it's a massive number, 10 to the 20, something on that sort of order of molecules of gas. So these, all these molecules are bouncing around, zipping around, bouncing off of each other. They're all vibrating, they're all rotating, they're doing all these different motions. And that's where they, each molecule has its energy stored in it like that way. And now what you can imagine when you have this many molecules, they're not all gonna have identically the same energy in them. Some will move faster, some will move slower. And what you have is you actually have a distribution of energies. And that distribution, um, there's some kind of well-known laws of physics that describe that distribution. Um, and the one's called a Boltzmann distribution, basically defines how when you have many, many molecules that can store energy in different ways, how that energy will, will be distributed. And based upon that distribution, there is a characteristic temperature that is associated with that distribution. And so temperature, what it really is, is it, it's actually a simplified way of expressing what that range of energies is for all of the molecules in some volume of gas, let's say. And so um, when you want to measure temperature with uh, the spectroscopic technique, what you do is you say, all right, I'm gonna try to measure all the molecules that have energy level one and all the molecules that have energy level two, just taking this simplified example. And by this definition of this Boltzmann distribution, which expresses the relationship between all of these different energy levels, if you know how many molecules are in energy level one, you know how many molecules are in energy level two, you actually, by definition, can then infer the number of molecules in every distribution or every state, and from that, determine what the temperature is. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot of physics that I am heavily oversimplifying, um, but the idea is you can measure temperature spectroscopically if you can determine the number of molecules in each state, um, because that is inherently how temperature is actually defined. So that may not have made much sense, um, but I'm happy to clarify or talk about some other thing if you want. Uh, well, that seems a lot more complex than the Fahrenheit model of, what was it? It was sticking the thermometer up. <laughs> the armpit of his wife or something like that yeah well that's that's the temperature scale you know they the scales can be kind of defined however you want but yeah the fahrenheit one there's a story that the way that it was defined was it, they took three temperature points i think and one was um, some sort of brine mixture salt water and ice or something i think that set like the zero point and then they used body temperature and they say that it was his wife's armpit temperature to set the, the 100 degrees and since it's been kind of adjusted but yeah a lot of these old scales were kind of designed based around convenience and the need to have something that was easy to reference or easy to do but there's obviously better scales nowadays so folks still like to use one uh, fahrenheit how do those lasers work like how, how are they are they just how do they work <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so i guess maybe maybe to start like what are the, you know, what makes a, a laser special? Um, because you, you, there's lots of ways to get light. I mean, we have light bulbs and we have campfires and we have, you know, things that glow in the dark and all sorts of different things, right? That produce light. And so a laser is special because it has what's called high coherence, meaning that all of the photons that are coming out of that laser, all the light that comes out of it is basically identical. Um, it all has 
and it all has the same wavelength and it all has the same phase. And um, what this means is that that light can produce, you can make a laser that will produce only basically one color of light, almost as pure of a single color as you can imagine. It's, it's almost like there is, it's a single color. Where are, they all, are they all red like they are in Star Trek? No, they're definitely not. If they were all red, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> um, being able to choose the color that comes out of a laser, and you can obviously also produce many colors that you can't see with your eyes. Um, actually, most of the lasers we work with, we can't see. Then how do you know that they are there? Oh, that's what those detectors, they, they serve as our eyes. And you also never want, <laughs> safety disclaimer, because I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing looking at a laser, never look at a laser. That's bad for you. How come? <laughs> because it can, uh, well, damage your eyes in a lot of different ways, depending upon the wavelength of it. But yeah, it can definitely cause blindness and have create holes in your vision and things like that. Um, but yeah, so a laser is special because it's able to produce coherent light. And that coherent light gives us some advantages in that we can have it produce a single color at one time, as opposed to a range of colors. Um, things like light bulbs um, produce a pretty wide spread of colors. That's also why they, you know, we, we intentionally want that for light bulbs a lot of the time because we want kind of white light, which is a kind of a distribution of colors all simultaneously emitted. But when you want to do science and stuff, there's a lot of value in being able to have a very specific single color that you're producing. Um, also, because of the way, because of the light being what's called um, spatially coherent, um, it means that that light can stay in a single beam for a very long distance. You know, you always think of a laser as being like a laser beam that can shoot a long ways, right? Whereas you, you shine a light from a standard like flashlight, let's say, you know, it doesn't, flashlights will go a little distance, but they start to spread pretty quickly, right? Um, that light is incoherent and it's very difficult to focus that into a very well, what's called collimated beam, which means that it kind of travel, all the rays travel parallel to each other. A laser, because of that property of spatial coherence, allows you to focus it into and collimate it into a very uh, consistent diameter beam. You can also focus it to an extremely tiny spot, which is really important for things like laser machining or um, things like lithography, which is a technique that they use for um, making computer chips and things like that. So yeah, that, that's what makes lasers special. As to how they work, that is pretty complicated, actually. <laughs> um, uh, we can try to talk, we can talk a bit about it. Um, I don't know that I've Okay, well, how about I don't know that I'd be able to explain it very quickly, but basically the idea is um, what you are doing is, you know, I described how molecules can have different energy levels. They vibrate and you can get them to vibrate higher. Well, so I talked about how when a photon gets absorbed, you move a molecule from a lower vibrational to a higher vibrational state, right? Well, the same sort of thing can happen in reverse, that a higher vibrational state can actually decay down to a lower vibrational state. And in that process, the way that it decays, it actually releases a photon. So it produces light. That same sort of process has happened in a laser. What is special, that, that's also the same sort of process that happens in a light bulb. Um, basically what's happening is things are going from a high excited state, they're decaying or relaxing down to a lower excited state. And in that process, they release a photon and it produces light. 
the special thing about a laser is that it controls that process such that basically all the light being produced is coming from a single state to a, a single lower state. And you can add a bunch of energy into the system such that there's, you have massive amounts of these um, photons decay are being released. So you get a very high power. Um, and it's done in such a way that the existence of one photon causes all of the other photons to basically be duplicates of that one photon. So they're all the same. That, that, that's what that coherence basically means is that all the photons are the same. And there's kind of a special characteristic of uh, the way that we do, we create light with a laser as opposed to light from a light bulb that causes all the photons to come out the same. Um, and that's called uh, stimulated emission. So are the photons all coming out of the laser generator or is it like as they're passing through other photons in the sky, they're just turning those into? Mm, no, it's only within the laser itself. So a laser has something called a cavity. Basically the idea is inside the laser, it, lasers can be made out of a bunch of different things, but um, a, you know, like a laser pointer that you have, what it has inside there is a little chip of material, which is called the gain media. And this is where all those, in this case, it's a, a lattice structure, but it, it's kind of like the molecules vibrating, same sort of idea, you can use that there. But that chip is where all the photons are produced. What they do is they take that chip and on either side of the chip, they put a mirror, a highly reflective mirror. And so what happens is initially one photon gets produced it works its way out. It bounces off that chip and some the molecules in that chip and atoms in that chip, and it generates some more photons. And then it works its way out of the chip, hits the mirror, gets reflected back in, and those then stimulate more to come out. And it bounces back and forth repeatedly. Um, and each photon that works its way back through the chip stimulates the emission of more photons that are identical to it. And so you have massive amounts of light bouncing back and forth between these two mirrors. And you have to add electricity or something else to kind of keep providing energy to it. But you create this resonant cavity and you get this incredible amount of amplification. So it starts off with just a few and in a very, very short period of time, all of a sudden there's just this absolutely massive number of photons bouncing back and forth between your two mirrors. So could, then, you, could you run out of photons in there like a, like a gas tank type thing? Like if you held um, down the trigger, would you eventually <laughs> run, like would you be expelling them faster than they can be created? So uh, yeah, kind of, you can, um, in that there is limits to how much, so you have to put in power first of all. So if you can't put in enough power, um, you can't generate more photons. There's also limits to the material. Uh, most of the time, the limits to the material is that the material starts to get too hot and it will break itself down. And so then it, it won't work anymore. Um, you can also do things where if you push too hard, it, it just kind of has a natural limitation where it can't keep pushing any harder because you run out. You know, I, I talk a lot about having going from one vibrational state to another, you actually end up running out of molecules or atoms that are in that state. Um, so you basically pump them all away and there's none left. It's, it's like you've, you've basically, if you have a crew of like 10 people and you assign jobs to all 10 people, you no longer have somebody else to assign a job to anymore. You got to wait until somebody finishes and comes back to give them a new job. That's kind of what happens is you run out of a population to work with. And so, yeah, you got all this light bouncing back between these two mirrors and depending upon the type of laser, 
some lasers, what they'll do is it builds up and then one of the mirrors basically turns off and all the light gets allowed to just dump out and you get this pulse. It's this, it's called the pulse laser. You get this pulse of light that comes at a very, very high power, but it's very short. And then it has to take a little while to regain it all again. And there's also what are called continuous wave lasers where those mirrors stay there all the time. But one of the two mirrors is designed, you know, let's say this one's 100% reflective. This one would be 99% reflective. And so it means that 1% of the light hitting this mirror, this second mirror will leak out and that becomes your laser beam. So you have really, really high power and 1% of it comes out um, and that becomes your laser beam. And that's what a laser pointer is basically doing. It's constantly shooting light out, but it's only that 1% that's getting out. But that means that there's still enough in this cavity that it can kind of just indefinitely run as long as you keep providing power to it. Okay, so what's the difference? So what would make the difference between a laser pointer mm -hmm. and then something like a phaser from Star Trek? Uh, or like I mentioned, the, the video that the Navy put out that has a laser that can shoot down a drum. So yeah, what, so I haven't seen that video, but um, so I, but just in theory, um, so why is a laser pointer harmless? Mm -hmm. But then, how can another laser damage something? You know what I mean? Like, what? Yeah. Is it just like well, energy level? It, well, it's it's really just the power. So it, it's the in the basically it's it's kind of like if you had a laser pointer and you bought. 10,000 laser pointers and you were somehow able to get them all to focus down onto the same line, it's kind of the same thing. You, you could get to power levels that are um, kind of like these weapons. The, the trick is getting it into a package that's small enough and be able to handle the, the power that has to be put into it. So you know, these things can, they can run off batteries or be plugged into a wall or whatever else. Um, there's different ways to power your laser. Um, but Ultimately, that's the challenge is how do you, you put in, let's say you put in, you put in some amount of energy into it through plugging it into the wall, but lasers will have an, like an efficiency rating, just like anything else is an efficiency rating in that you, you, um, a certain fraction of that energy that goes in just turns into heat. It's kind of waste heat. Um, it's the same thing with, you know, you run a, your laptop, you know, your laptop gets hot, right? There's a certain amount of the power that it's pulling from the wall it is just being wasted to heat. Um, and so that's the big challenge is that when you start wanting to scale up such that you have a powerful enough laser, so a really powerful laser, you're, you are right. What it is mostly doing is it's just delivering a lot of photons. Now you can deliver photons that are individually of different energies. Um, so a UV photon or ultraviolet photon, which has a very short wavelength, has higher energy than an infrared photon. So the, the way that the spectrum goes is that ultraviolet is very short wavelengths. And as you get slightly longer wavelengths, you get into like the blue color, you know, you got our rainbow of colors. Um, and that starts with blues and kind of works its way to greens and yellows, and then ends up as reds on the farthest end of what our visual spectrum is, where you have the longest wavelength. And then beyond that gets into the infrared, which is long wavelengths that we can't see, but that ultimately is actually what we feel is heat. If you, you know, if you feel like the radiant heat coming off of a campfire, what you're feeling is mostly infrared light that's hitting you. And so, yeah, so a laser that you want to be very, very powerful, um, it can be designed that it could be um, sort of any wavelength you want. And 
the total power that it deposits at the other end that you're trying to shoot at something um, would be a function of the number of photons that are hitting and the energy of those individual photons. So how would you increase the energy to the photons? Well, um, if you're focusing on increasing the energy of the photons themselves as opposed to the number of photons, um, then you need basically to use gain media. You know, I talked about how in between those two cavity mirrors, you got a gain media. That gain media more or less determines what range of energy of photons it can produce. And um, we have lasers that can produce a pretty wide range. Um, you, know, you, you buy a laser specifically for a range of wavelengths that you want it to produce. Um, but it is the lasers that are out there, especially when you're talking about very high power lasers. Um, yeah, you, um, that's a good question. So I don't know actually what they use in these weapons. I don't know if they're going towards uh, infrared wavelengths or they go towards UV. I imagine they got to be going towards infrared wavelengths um, for most of this, probably like one or two micro or probably one micron or something like that, um, which is just past our visual range a little ways on the long so end. So you wouldn't, in theory, you wouldn't be able to see the laser? Most likely not. You might be able to see the effects of the laser in that there's so much energy being dumped that you might be able to see, for instance, like the ionization of the air, which when that air gets heated up very hot, um, it itself will release some, some light um, that is at a different wavelength than the laser itself. Yeah, so part of it though as well as you want, you know, I talked about absorption of light, you would probably want to select a wavelength that is going to be very readily absorbed by the thing that you're trying to shoot. Because you want the thing that you're trying to hit to take that energy. And if you basically put too much energy into something, it's inevitably going to break. You can't hold all the energy and so it, it breaks apart. Um, and so you'd want it to absorb that energy as opposed to reflect it. Like say, for instance, if you're shooting at a target that looks just like a mirror, you're not going to damage the mirror. Most likely you're going to bounce the light somewhere else and you'll damage something else. So then, so when you say uh, it absorbs it, so then would the laser cut through an object or would it just heat it up until it disintegrated? Um, well, those are kind of actually more or less the same thing. I, I, again, I'm not an expert in like the, um, I guess what you'd call the like, uh, solid state interactions with, with photons. And there, I guess there's kind of different failure mechanisms. You could dump enough heat in that's on a kind of a longer time scale that eventually you, you heat up something so much that it starts to melt. Um, but then there's also the possibility that you would provide, and that would be the case where you're providing many, many photons of lower energy. So this would be probably with a laser that is a more infrared laser. Alternatively, you could provide very high energy photons and those high energy photons themselves might be high enough energy not to just excite a molecule to a higher state but actually to break a molecule apart where which would be kind of like what you consider the um, dissociation energy or maybe the ionization energy of a depending upon you know how high of energy it is but the idea would be that those bonds start to break when that when a photon uh when it absorbs the energy of the photon, the bond breaks immediately, or that uh, you strip off electrons and you know, the molecule falls apart or the atom falls apart. Yeah, so uh, that's a, a good question. I actually don't really know how the high power late, these are re really, this is relevant to like uh, laser machining more so 
you know, laser machining and laser cutting is used all the time. I'm not quite sure what physical process is happening there. I, I, whether they're just putting a lot of heat in or if they're actually uh, dissociating or breaking the bonds of the molecules that create the material, that form the material. I imagine, this is me speculating, but I imagine if you wanted a cleaner cut, you probably would want to be more on the side of breaking the bonds than simply heating it up and kind of melting it away because that heat, what it'll do is it'll dissipate and you probably end up damaging parts of the material that are a little bit away as opposed to cleanly cutting through it. You could kind of think of the analogy of like, if you're just heating it up, if you're just putting a hot torch on something, you're kind of going to get this sloppy melted cut through something. Okay, cool. Are there handheld lasers? Well, like I've got there, laser pointers. Well, I mean, uh, um, could something like, uh, like I know Star Trek is fake, but could something like handheld phasers from Star Trek ever exist? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, actually I should send you a YouTube video after this. I, there was some, some YouTube project kid guy, a teenager that, decided to see how powerful of a handheld laser he could build. He actually did a pretty decent job of it. Um, but yeah, um, the reality is high power lasers are getting smaller and smaller and more and more efficient all the time to the point that, yeah, you can, you can definitely buy the, the challenge is providing enough power to it. So in a lot of cases, you still kind of need to be plugged into a wall, but if you get enough of these like really high energy density batteries, you could run a system like that for a short period of time, you're going to run out of your batteries relatively quickly, but yeah, you can make handheld lasers that you certainly would not want to stand in front of. You would get some pretty bad burns. Is there like a distance limit to lasers or are they kind of like, once you shoot it, they'll just go forever. Um, well, I mean, the photons technically do go forever until they're absorbed by something. That's, that's the reality of it. I mean, that's, that's, kind of the reality of also when you look at like stars and stuff, you know, the, that those photons have traveled more or less all the way from uh, the star to your eyeball. Do they um, lose energy over time? Well, you, the number of photons are lost, but the individual photons that do survive, no, they're still the same energy more or less. I mean, there, there can be small shifts due to various effects, but effectively, you know, it's those individual photons are still there. Sorry, but the question was, uh, is there a limit to how far light can go? So the photons themselves can travel effectively forever. Um, but if you're talking about what you think more so as like the laser beam itself, you know, this kind of well-structured beam of light, um, no, over, you can collimate this very, very well, but over a, a significant distance, what will happen is that beam will start to diverge. So it starts off as a very small beam, but slowly it kind of starts to spread itself out. Um, to, and eventually it wouldn't be really recognizable as a, a tight laser beam, but it, it's, it certainly can go a long way. Yeah, uh, that, that is a, of course, assuming that those photons aren't absorbed somewhere along the way. Okay, for things like laser cutters, like the harmful type lasers, I'm assuming then that means that at a certain point they'll stop being able to heat up objects, cut objects, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's the basically, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, one of the, the great advantages of a laser as well is that you can focus the light to a very tiny spot, meaning that many, many photons are hitting the same spot at the same time. Um, yeah, as soon as it starts to spread out, uh, the effectiveness of that would, would really drop off. I mean, a lot of laser cutters, what you'll see is that the, uh, the, 
the tip where the light is coming out of and then being focused is only a few millimeters from the place that they actually want to cut. They keep it very, very close. Because when you want to focus to a really, really tiny spot, um, the distance over which you can keep that small spot actually becomes very, very short. Um, there's, a, there's a relationship called the diffraction limit that um, basically defines uh, how, how far a beam can stay collimated for based upon its, uh, uh, sorry, how far a beam can stay collimated for uh, based upon uh, the size of that beam and the wavelength of that beam. Okay, cool. So light can bend around things like black holes in space, I've read. Mm -hmm. um, are you, how does that work? And can you do that with light on Earth? Yeah, so I am by no means uh, uh, an expert in this sort of stuff. This is far outside of my expertise. Oh, okay. uh, but I mean, I, I have a basic understanding, I guess. So, um, so basically what's happening when you have a, a very massive object that creates a very strong gravitational field. So a star or, I mean, everything does this, but the thing, the big examples where you see this effect most strongly, a star or a black hole, like you said, um, basically what happens is that that mass, that gravitational field, it, it is basically a, that mass distorts um, space-time. Um, and so you probably have seen these pictures where it looks like a, it looks like a trampoline or it's like a web kind of funnel shape sort of thing around a planet. So that's basically a representation of the distortion in space-time. And so the light still travels in a straight line, but basically a straight line is no longer straight in our concept of it. Oh, okay. Oh, because okay. straight has been bent um, due to the mass there. And so you have a bending that happens and um, that can happen anywhere. So technically every object, if you pass a light laser light beam next to uh, you know a glass of water on your table, you know, that's probably a bad example because you see light bend, but you, a rock, you got a rock sitting on your desk and you, you send a, a light right next to it. Technically it's getting bent because that rock does distort space time because of its mass, but it's so small we don't notice it. Um, but for these very high mass objects, um, that bending is, is well known. And it's, it's interesting because you can actually observe that looking up at you know, the, the sky, at least astronomers can observe that. It's called, there's an effect called gravitational lensing. And it's really interesting that what you can do is you can actually use stars uh, or our sun or even other galaxies as a way to image something that is further away so it becomes kind of like a lens for your camera. And it's really clever use of kind of nature's, the opportunities that nature gives us. I think I sent you something about this before, but I think one of the more interesting things I've ever read about was a concept of using our sun as a lens, gravitational lens for observing planets around other stars. And that you could actually use the, the sun as the biggest, effectively biggest lens we've ever had and you could take a picture, theoretically, you could take a picture of a planet around another star at megapixel resolution, where you'd have basically a thousand pixels across the diameter of that planet. So it would be high enough resolution to see things like continents and oceans and weather patterns and, and things like that, possibly even industrialization if there was that. 
case. Like if somebody was to use a similar concept on our planet, you'd likely be able to see some degree of our industrialization that's that we have on our planet. You'd, you know, yeah. you'd be able to see the lights of cities and things like that. Well, I guess depending on how far they are away, right? Like Yeah, yeah, but um the what what I mean this, as in like the you know, if they're a million light years away, they're gonna see a million years in our past kind of thing. Oh yes, yeah. It does does mean that yeah, you you see a time delay for sure. Yeah. Um but there are certainly uh, stars that are not that far you know, that are yeah. you'd see them you know, a few light years or a few years back as opposed to um, that far back but yeah so uh yeah light can be bent by gravity and it can actually be turned to some pretty cool uses but yeah it's not usually something we worry too much about can something like wind uh affect lasers so let's say you lack of analogy like the laser pointer if you can keep the laser pointer steady right mm-hmm. like isolated but then just put like a fan or like wind on the actual light portion. Can you, does the wind affect the light beam at all? Okay. So if it's just strictly the motion of the gas, not really. There's, however, if there is variations in the density of the gas that's in front of it, you can have effects where it will steer the beam around. So the the way to look at, I think about this is it's very similar to looking, you know, looking across your your stove or some hot surface. You know, when you look close to the hot surface, you'll see kind of like a a mirage sort of effect, right? Like a wavering. Uh, and so what's happening there is when light travels through any sort of media, um, it does interact with the molecules there or the the atoms or molecules in in that media, whether that's a gas or a solid or whatever else. And it's, it's also, you see this when you look into a swimming pool, right? You look into the water and objects look at a slightly different location than they actually are, right? It's, if you ever tried to like spear a fish, it's pretty easy to miss the fish because you actually think the fish is somewhere else than it actually is because the light is getting bent. This is something called the index of refraction. So based upon the uh, composition of the material, it will cause the, that interface between two media will cause the light to bend. So light will enter in, and then when it hits this new media, it will actually travel at a different angle. And so you can have that same sort of effect just in the air, where if you have a pocket of hotter air, let's say, that air will have a uh, lower density. And when the light beam hits that pocket of lower air, it'll actually get turned a little bit. It'll get bent in a different direction. And you can imagine when you're like, you have heat coming up off of a a stove top or something that heat is kind of swirling around. You get air currents that kind of move in different directions with various different temperatures and densities. That beam will kind of go through there and it'll kind of like get walked around in a bunch of different directions. And so you'll see it kind of, if, you're hold, if you were to hold a laser on your stove top, pass the beam pretty close over top of the stove top and you put a piece of paper on the far side, what you'd see on the far side is that your beam would walk itself around and you might actually also even see the spot size or the shape of that beam on the paper uh, slightly distort and change. Oh, interesting. Cool. Yeah. So anything else about lasers you want to add? <laughs> um, I don't know. They're pretty fun to work with. I, I like that. I like that you can use, use them like this to harness sort of like this natural interaction to get information about the world. Um, I, I find that kind of the most, for me, the most interesting, exciting thing is that 
I can look for answers to questions that people have about various things, you know, lots of times practical energy systems or propulsion systems or other things that. Um, so, okay. So for the lasers you do, you said you have uh, the side that sends and then you have mm -hmm. like a lens or like a capture side, but then for those lasers that like people just have for uh, COVID now that shoot the thing mm -hmm. somebody's forehead. So there's no receiving side. How does it get the information for heat and stuff mm -hmm. like that on, that way? So it's interesting. Uh, you're talking like the, the handheld point and shoot thermometers, right? Yeah. Are those lasers at all? Those can some completely different. Or, okay. because, so, or because, go ahead. Seen, because I've seen some that actually like emit a laser like light. Are they actual mm -hmm. lasers or are they just add a handheld laser pointer in it for effect to make it seem cooler than it actually is? Yeah, you're you're astute. Yes, that that is basically what's happening there. So they put in a laser solely for the purpose of you knowing where you're pointing at. That's all it's doing. It's basically a, a spot to show you where it is. That laser has nothing to do with the measure of the temperature. All that those things do is it's, it's basically like a single pixel of a camera chip. So, you know, your camera's got so many pixels, right? Yeah. It's one pixel of that is in one of these devices. And what they're looking for is they look for, so I, I told you this, that temperature is defined by, well, I, let me step back. So every object, will emit radiation, um, emit light. It's just most things are so cold that what they're emitting is light that is um, very far into the infrared. So you, you, I mean, you, you have obviously seen like infrared camera pictures, right? And yeah. so infrared camera picture, you can see somebody's body, you can see the heat coming off of them, right? Yeah. What you're seeing is that you as a, an object that is, you know, at 40 degrees Celsius, roughly, you are emitting light. You're emitting what's called black body radiation. And the wavelength of light that you emit is dependent upon the temperature that that object is. And so what these you know, no touch thermometers or standoff thermometers, or whatever they're calling them, what these do is they look at a specific color of light and they look at how much of it is coming off of you. And they say, all right, and they basically have this little lookup table that's in there that says, all right, if this much light of this color is coming off of this thing, that thing is 37 degrees Celsius. If it's getting this much, then it's 39 degrees Celsius. So basically it's effectively taking a single pixel picture of you at a very specific color that's beyond what our eyes can see. Oh, okay. And then the laser pointer is just so you know where you're yeah yeah that is exactly what it's there for it although it gives the impression that it's doing something fancy with the laser all it's doing is showing you where you're pointing actually not since you brought that up kind of thinking about like um common use cases of lasers um laser um laser speed traps it's another thing that you how do those work so actually in that case they send out and receive from the same object so basically what it does is it, it does send out a laser uh basically a beam of radiation that bounces off of the vehicle and then comes back and it gets measured by the same inside that same device there's both the emitter and the uh, collector so like the detection system and the emission system so it sends out light it bounces back and when it's bouncing off a car it's actually spraying in a lot of different directions but a, a reasonable fraction of it comes back and gets caught by this thing and what that thing does it, it makes use of something called the doppler effect the doppler right. shift 
Um, I'm sure you've heard of it when you think about like a siren going by that when you know, ambulance is coming towards you, it sounds more high pitched. And then when it's going away from you, it sounds lower pitched. It's the exact same sort of effect, but it's with light. So when you send the light out and it hits a vehicle, that's, you know, let's say that vehicle is going away from you at hundred kilometers an hour, light bounces back. What has happened is that light gets shifted in its frequency. Uh, or oh, its wavelength, okay. same sort of thing. And by measuring the difference in frequency between the light that went out and the light that comes back, you can tell how fast something is going. Okay. So could you put in uh, a mirror and adjust the angle that it goes back at so it makes it look like you're going slower or faster? Well, you couldn't really make it seem like you're going faster or slower so much because the mirror would just change the angle that it's going off at. You could if you had a really good mirror that was pointed off at an angle and they were shooting at that mirror, they probably wouldn't actually get any light back on their detector. So their detector wouldn't get anything. They couldn't make the measurement. They rely on some of the light making it back to them. So that's actually the way that uh, stealth technology for like radar works is you actually basically, that's why stealth vehicles look all blocky with like flat panels all over them. You know, like you, the, you, you think of like the, you know, the stealth airplanes, like the, well, what is it called? Like Black Hawk or something like that. Um, right. It's all these flat, harsh angles, right? Like super angular looking. The idea there is that radar is, it's just a different wavelength of light. Um, it's all electromagnetic magnetic radiation that comes in. And so radar stations send out a radar signal. And then they also have detectors. And what they're looking for is it bouncing back at them. And so a rounded body basically guarantees that at least some of it will come back to them. But if you've got this angular body, there's a pretty good chance that it's going to come bounce off there and then just shoot off in some other random direction. And they would never see it. Is that why uh, Tesla made that truck all angular? So you speed? <laughs> You'll have to ask uh, Elon Musk about that one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I don't think they did it for aesthetics because it, I don't think it looks very good. <laughs> So maybe it is so you can speed. <laughs> maybe it is. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted to trick a speed trap, um, I don't know. I suppose you could rig up a way that you, you would, if you knew what wavelength of light they were sending out from their radar guns or their laser uh, speed traps, uh, you could send back exactly the same wavelength without the Doppler shift and they'd measure it as zero. But I don't know well enough of how those things actually work to tell you what to do there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's about it. My questions. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. In our next episode, we talk about the evolution of crustaceans into crabs.